Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's event occurred in 1889 but what else happened that year? Well, I can tell you that on March the 31st, the Eiffel Tower was inaugurated in Paris and opened on May the 8th. At 300 metres high, it became the highest structure in the world by 130 metres. But the critics didn't like it, calling it aesthetically displeasing. On April the 22nd at high noon in Oklahoma Territory, thousands rushed to claim land in the land rush of 1889. Within hours, the cities of Oklahoma City and Guthrie were formed, with populations of at least 10,000. On June the 19th, a Neapolitan baker named Rafael Esposito invented the pizza margarita, named after the Queen Consort of Italy, Margarita of Savoy. This is the forerunner of the modern pizza. And on November the 14th, inspired by Jules Verne, Pioneer American woman journalist Nellie Bly begins an attempt to beat travel around the world in less than 80 days. Bly finishes the journey in 72 days, 6 hours and 11 minutes. But our event occurred on the 9th of November, 1889, and resulted in Benjamin Purnell, 51, a labourer who was formerly a soldier in the Wiltshire Regiment, brought up in custody charged with the willful murder of his wife, Emily, at Devizes. Word of the Week And for your entertainment, this week's Word of the Week is... Globella, which is the space between your eyebrows. When Benjamin Purnell was placed in the dock, his face was flushed and frightened, and his features were haggard. He had come to realise the awful position, and seemed to have abandoned all hope. This general appearance was the more marked. When the charge was read out aloud to the court, he pleaded in a hollow voice, guilty. The plea startled everyone, as it was generally understood that he was going to fight his innocence. The clerk of arraigns, to make certain that he had not mistaken the plea, again asked the prisoner 
if he was guilty. And Benjamin replied, Yes, I am guilty of the charge. The prisoner's counsel then climbed across the seat to the dock and held a brief whispered conversation with him. The prisoner then withdrew his first plea and pleaded not guilty. The trial then continued with the court filled to excess. The gallery, which was reserved for women, was overcrowded and the whole proceedings were listened to with breathless attention. Mr Radcliffe, in opening the case for prosecution, said the prisoner was charged with murder of Emily Purnell, his wife. Benjamin Purnell and Emily Hampton had met when they were both working at the Devizes workhouse. Emily had been living with her father when she had been given the job of superintendent of the children in the workhouse on the 8th of October 1878, a position she retained until the 9th of March 1880. It looks like she would have been sacked anyway if she hadn't handed in her resignation as she was a notorious liar. When she left, she was given no references, even though she asked several times. Benjamin Purnell was said to be a sullen, ill-tempered man, given to magnifying faults in others whilst minimising his own. He was working as a porter, and when he asked his employer if he could marry Emily, they declined as his position was for a single man. So he handed in his notice too. The pair were married in the Devizes Registry Office, with Emily being given away by a workhouse colleague. Six weeks later, Benjamin left Emily and didn't return for five and a half years. During that time, Emily gave birth to a boy, Benjamin John, who sadly passed away at only a few months old. Benjamin didn't return until May 1889, when they both went to live with Emily's brother, Edward Hampton, at Avon Terrace. But Edward wasn't happy with Benjamin being there, saying that he was lazy and had to work to pay for their keep. So Benjamin left again for five months, returning sometime in 1886. Their one child, Clara, was born in October 1886, and Benjamin refused to believe that she was his. Although in a letter sent to the Devizes and Wiltshire Gazette, published on the 28th of November 1889, he says, Dear brother, I should be much obliged to you if you could anyhow arrange it for me to see my child, as I should very much like to see how it is getting on. I think that you should send it down by one of the boys if they are not all at work. I remain yours, Benjamin Purnell. From all accounts, it appears that from the time Benjamin returned, their relationship wasn't very good. However, matters didn't hit crisis point, until the date of the crime, sometime just before the incident, Benjamin had been away harvesting and on his return had given Emily 18 shillings, a rare occurrence in itself. Now, if she'd spent it on drink or him, he would probably have been fine, but she bought herself two petticoats as well as some clothes for her child. On Friday evening, the 8th of November, 1889, Benjamin, Emily and the Hamptons went to bed at the usual time. Benjamin, Emily and Edward's youngest son, Caleb, aged nine, were sleeping in the back of the two bedrooms. Edward Hampton and two other sons, Obed and Charles, 
were sleeping in the front part of the house, which was an ordinary four-roomed cottage. Shortly before six o'clock in the morning of Saturday the 9th, Edward awoke, got dressed and went to work as usual at the tobacco and snuff mill owned by Mr Anstey. He passed the door of the room in which Benjamin and his wife were sleeping and noticed the light on but nothing else. When Edward Hampton left home for work that morning, there were no clues as to the utter destruction and chaos that would ensue while he was away. After Edward Hampton went out, Caleb saw his uncle get up and go to the head of the bed where his wife was sleeping and take the petticoats that caused so many arguments since their purchase. Benjamin then left the room, mumbling something to himself. The other two boys sleeping in the adjoining room also heard their uncle go downstairs. Benjamin then went into the back garden and shredded the clothing, leaving them in tatters on the ash heap. About five minutes later, his wife, Emily, also went downstairs, dressed in nothing but a chemise, taking with her the lamp that had been burning in the room. Not long after she went downstairs, the two elder boys sleeping in their father's room heard Emily say to her husband, Give me my petticoat! And they heard Benjamin reply, Go along, you thing, or I'll break your skull! Emily rushed out into the garden to search for her petticoats, and Benjamin followed her, grabbing an axe by the pantry on the way. It all went quiet, and then about four or five minutes later, the boys heard a succession of heavy blows. The two boys got up and went downstairs, and Obed, aged 14, passed Benjamin in the front room of the house. He noticed that his uncle wasn't wearing a coat or waistcoat, and was taking a coat and a vest out of a drawer. The boy asked the prisoner where his aunt was, and he got no reply. After that, the boy rushed out into the backyard and saw his aunt lying on the floor some seven yards from the back door. He then called a neighbour by the name of William Hillier of 22A in view, and his younger brother, Charles, aged 13, went for the police. On his way there, Charles saw his uncle by the canal, but when his uncle realised he'd been found, Benjamin ran away. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the Big Stroll. Today sees us in the lovely town of Devizes, which basically started off with a castle. Now, Devizes Castle was built by Osmond, Bishop of Salisbury, in 1080, and because the castle was on the boundaries of the manors of Rode, Bishop's Canning and Pottern, it became known as the Castrum ad Devizes, or the castle on the boundaries, hence the name Devizes. The castle was besieged during the anarchy a 12th century civil war between Stephen of England and Empress Matilda. She was the daughter of King Henry I and he was Henry's nephew, who believed that he was the rightful heir to the throne as he was male and she was but a lowly woman. The castle was attacked again during the English civil war 
when the Cavaliers lifted the siege at the Battle of Roundway Down. Devizes remained under royalist control until 1645, when Oliver Cromwell attacked and forced the royalists to surrender. The castle was destroyed in 1648 on the orders of Parliament. The town itself developed around the castle and is now a market town and civil parish in Wiltshire. From the 16th century, Devizes became known for its textiles, and by the early 18th century, it held the largest corn market in the West Country, constructing the Corn Exchange in 1857. In the 18th century, brewing, curing of tobacco and snuff-making were established. The Wadworth Brewery was founded in the town in 1875. And if you're interested, they are still there, and you can go on tours of the premises. And the Market Cross is something you can't miss when you're going through the main drag of the town centre. It's absolutely gorgeous, and it displays the tale of a woman called Ruth Pierce. On Thursday, the 25th of January, 1753, Ruth Pierce of Potterine in this county agreed with three other women to buy a sack of wheat in the market, each paying a due proportion towards the same. One of these women, in collecting the several quotas of money, discovered a deficiency and demanded of Ruth Pierce the sum which was wanting to make good the amount. Ruth Pierce protested that she had paid her share and said she wished she might drop down dead if she had not. She rashly repeated this awful wish when, to the consideration and terror of the surrounding multitude, she instantly fell down and expired, having the money concealed in her hand. Another local legend concerns the pond known as the Crammer, east of the town centre, and is claimed to be the site of the 18th century Moonraker story, which led to a colloquial name for Wiltshire people. The story goes that some local people had hidden contraband barrels of French brandy from customs officers in a village pond. While trying to retrieve it at night, they were caught by the revenue men, but explained themselves by pointing to the moon's reflection and saying they were trying to rake in a big round cheese. The revenue men, thinking they were simple yokels, laughed at them and went on their way. We'll be continuing our stroll around Devizes in the next episode. And remember, we're walking this 370 kilometre route, all in aid of the Suicide Prevention Bristol Charity, in memory of Sarah who passed away in March. And if you want to support us, just go to justgiving.com and look up Backtracker, and you'll find our sponsor page there. Welcome back, everyone. Shall we continue with our story? Those who saw the body where it lay and the surrounding chaos would later explain to the court what they saw. Emily was lying in the corner of the back garden a few yards from the back door with a huge quantity of blood around her head and a lamp under her arm. About two yards from her feet were the remains of her beloved flannel petticoats 
and a very short distance from her was a hatchet which still had human hairs attached to it as well as blood and which the jury would no doubt conclude was the instrument of her death. Examination showed that Emily had received seven severe blows, two of which were to her head. Her skull was fractured and her brain lacerated. Though she was not quite dead, and Dr Carey was called in and immediately took her to the cottage hospital where her wounds were dressed and she held on to life until 5am the following morning. She was only 44. Dr Carey would describe in detail the wounds from which she died. One wound was inflicted by a sharp cutting instrument and the others apparently by the blunt side of an instrument and he believed any one of them would have been sufficient to cause death. Benjamin had left the house before the police arrived but he was arrested the same morning by Superintendent Baldwin outside the Artichoke Inn apparently on his way to the police station. He said, I am come to give myself up. When he was arrested, he was wearing a pair of white cord trousers and the police officer noticed spots of blood on the front part of him. Baldwin saw Benjamin in the jail later that evening and after being cautioned, Benjamin said, I know I beat my wife. The next morning, when he was told that she was dead, he said, Oh, is she? The facts on which the case rested were very simple. There was only one matter that the jury were asked to think about, and that was what took place before the blows were struck. There was no doubt that it was Benjamin who committed the evil deed. There was no other person in the house physically capable, and Benjamin admitted to the police that he had beaten his wife. It wasn't the first time he'd struck his wife. About a month previously, Benjamin had hit her several times with his fists, threatening to kill her. As to the motives of him committing this act, he had been heard by more than one witness threatening Emily's life, and that, the next time he left her, she would be a dead woman. The learned counsel put all these facts together. Number one, the previous grudge between the parties, the threat on the morning in question. Number two, the number and severity of the blows inflicted on the unhappy woman. And number three, the words said by Benjamin after the event and so he asked the jury to say that Benjamin was guilty of the charge. Edward Hampton, who lived at 21 Avon Terrace and was Emily's brother, was called and gave evidence similar to what was already said. When he was cross-examined by Mr Hussey Walsh, Benjamin's defence lawyer, Edward said that Benjamin and Emily had been married for nine years but he didn't know why Benjamin had left his wife six weeks after the wedding. Emily had never told him. He mentioned that in the July of 1880, after Benjamin had left her, Emily was pregnant with a boy, who unfortunately died soon after birth. Emily had christened the baby, Benjamin Jonathan. The only living child that the couple had, Clara, was three years old on the 18th of October, 1888 and Benjamin was not home when that child was born. Edward couldn't say how long Benjamin had been away from his wife when Clara was born. The son, Obed Hampton, in reply to Mr Radcliffe, repeated the evidence given before the magistrates. The principal point in his evidence was that he had seen Benjamin come upstairs in the morning of the murder 
snatch Emily's petticoats from the head of the bedstead and take him downstairs. He also said he heard his uncle and aunt go downstairs on the morning of the 9th and then he heard Benjamin threaten to split the deceased's skull and it was when he heard the sounds of blows that he went downstairs. Obed also mentioned that he'd heard Benjamin threaten Emily on previous occasions and when he was cross-examined by the defence he said he had heard many quarrels but could not recollect what they were about. Charles Hampton, another son, was also examined by the prosecution and said he heard his father get up at about six o'clock and go out. He then heard Benjamin and Emily quarrel and also heard the sound of five or six blows afterwards. On his way to give the information to the police about the murder, he saw Benjamin by the canal bridge and then saw him run away. About a month previously, he heard Benjamin say to Emily, The next time I leave you, you'll be a dead woman. A threat heard more than once. On cross-examination, he said he heard the pair quarrel about the child and the petticoats, but couldn't tell why they quarrelled about the child. He had heard Benjamin say, I'll take the child by the feet and smash it. The evidence for the prosecution was summed up. The testimony heard justified the theory of willful murder. The number of blows and the murderous weapon used clearly showed that the prisoner intended to take his wife's life. There was utter absence of provocation, and that being so, he felt sure that if they came to the conclusion that the blows were struck without provocation, they would feel it in their duty to return verdict guilty on the capital charge. Mr Hussey Walsh, for the defence, said it seemed to him a case that it was extremely difficult to argue, but he wished to point out that there were circumstances in the case which had not been disclosed by the evidence and which he himself was unable to tell them about. The defence told the jury that there were many suppositions open to them, but he would leave them to ask themselves why there was so much mystery about the child. Counsel then went on to argue that there must have been dire provocation on the part of his wife to make Benjamin grab the weapon, first to hand, and strike her. In conclusion, he asked them to extend to Benjamin the mercy which was characteristic of the law of England. The judge then proceeded to sum up the case, but first he explained to the jury the law as to murder and manslaughter, and said no angry words would justify violence resulting in murder. There must be evidence of a struggle of a physical nature. There was, he said, no question as to the woman having met her death at the hands of her husband, and there was no evidence, whatever, of any struggle between the parties. The real question which they had to consider was what occurred before the blows were struck. If they could see any fact that would establish in their minds any reason to reduce the charge from murder to manslaughter, they would, of course, do so. But he had to remind them that those acts must not be merely matters of imagination or suggestion, and they must not adopt them merely from a desire to take humane view of the facts, which were unalterable. Their views to the matter must be based on real evidence and facts in their minds as to what took place. He would ask them to consider the matter and then said whether they considered Benjamin guilty of the crime of willful murder or of manslaughter. The jury's deliberation took just over an hour, and when they returned, the clerk of arraigns asked if they had agreed on their verdict. 
What say you? Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty? We find him guilty of willful murder. Benjamin Purnell, please stand. Please uh, mitigate to the court why you think this court should not implement you with the death sentence. Benjamin didn't give an answer. The judge put on the black cap, slowly turned round to Benjamin and said, Benjamin Purnell, you have been found guilty of the willful murder of your wife and you and those who hear me now that there is but one sentence known to the law for this offence. I have no desire to say one word in reference to the circumstances of the crime which you have committed. But before I pass sentence, I desire that you should thoroughly understand that you ought not to look forward to in hope of a remission or variation of that sentence so far as I am aware. And I can only further say that I trust earnestly that such time is given to you in this life you will use to best advantage. Assistance will be given to you in this life. You will have every comfort that can be given to you by human aid, and I ask you and beg of you, laying aside, as I have told you, all human hope, to turn to God, whose law you have so offended in spirit of humility and repentance, and looking to him through Jesus Christ our Lord, look for that hope which has never been denied to a repentant sinner. The sentence of the court is that you be taken from hence to the place from whence you came, and from thence the place of execution, and that you be hanged by the neck until you shall be dead, and that your body be afterwards buried within the precincts of the prison in which you have been last confined after your conviction. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. In conclusion... He asked them to extend to Benjamin the mercy which was characteristic of the law of England. Benjamin, who had listened to the sentence with a dazed, despairing look, was then removed to the cells. On the scaffold, as a noose was secured around his neck, Benjamin, talking about how he knew his little girl Clara would be taken care of after his death, said, I shall die happy. Benjamin Purnell was 51 and hanged on the 9th of November 1889 at Her Majesty's Prison, Bath Road, Devizes. His death was instantaneous. At the time, this was the third execution within the past seven years and incidentally, all the men were locals who had been in the army and none of which had exhibited any emotion for their crimes. During the trial... Three-year-old Clara was looked after by a lady in devices called Mrs. E. B. Anstey, whose husband owned the tobacco and snuff factory in which Edward Hampton worked. When she received the message about Benjamin wanting to see his child one last time before the execution, she declined, thinking it might be too much for such a young child. Instead, she sent Benjamin a photograph, for which he was extremely grateful. Eventually, Clara would be adopted by Thomas and Elizabeth Smith of Chapel House in Bishop's Canning, joining their three other children. She knew the Smith family very well, as she'd been previously living next door to them with George Whelan and his niece, Emily White. 
Clara went on to marry Robert Spawn and have a family of her own. She died in Cambridge on the 23rd of March, 1973. Once upon a time. Boring. It was the best of times. It was the worst. You got that right. What's your problem? We want new stories. Hi, it's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host the Ever Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we bring to life a fictional story created by our own minds and some of the hottest, craziest trends from the internet. Find us wherever you download podcasts and be sure to join the fun on social media at Ever Trending Pod. In the news today, a man in Bradley Stoke wondered what his parents did to fight boredom before the internet. So he asked his 15 brothers and sisters, and they didn't know either. Back in the day facts. And I'd like to start you off with the 19th of June, when in 1885, the Statue of Liberty arrived in the harbour of New York City. On the 20th of May, 1942, US pop and rock musician with the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson was born. Also on the 20th of June, in 1949, US tennis player Gertrude Gorgeous Gussie Moran shocked Wimbledon audiences by wearing lace-trimmed knickers under her short skirt for her appearance on Centre Court. On the 21st of June, 1675, the foundation stone of the new St Paul's Cathedral was laid in London, the old one having been destroyed by the Great Fire of 1666. And on the 22nd of June in 1817, Wyndham Sadler became the first aeronaut to cross the Irish Sea by balloon. I hope you've enjoyed this show as much as I have. And, as always, a huge thanks goes to the real stars of the show today, which include Emma Cleave, Mike Clark, John Locke, Henry Arnold and Steve Shepard from your very own Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Molly Jeffries from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or alternatively you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk by the way the tune in the background that's by the model folk you can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com so thank you so much for listening and until next time guys take care and look after each other <laughs>